have you ever turned to the wrong person for help? Have you ever turned to the wrong person for help? In 2014, I was at Marine Corps Officer Candidate School, which is like boot camp, and um, on our very first day there, the drill instructors, you get introduced to them, they're not very nice, and um, just a, a few hours later, we were given some menial task that we were supposed to get wrong and get you know, yelled at for. But we, there was some difficulty that our, our candidates that we were having. And so I remember thinking, okay, it's the first day of OCS. I should take some leadership. I should take some initiative. And I should be the one. I, I'm going to volunteer myself to be the one. Joey's like, no, don't do that. He's shaking his head. He knows. But I thought, I'm going to take some initiative. I'm going to go to the drill instructor and express my confusion, express the fact that we don't know what to do, and ask for some help. Yeah, Joey is just like, what are you doing? And so there was kind of this drill instructor room where, where they were, and we had been given very specific instructions as to how you are to approach them and introduce yourself and make your presence known to them if you request assistance. And so for about the next five minutes, I stood trying to simply enter the room. But I was refused access, entrance. Uh, I didn't follow the prescribed protocol perfectly into the letter. And so I learned my lesson. Don't go asking drill instructors for help. Perhaps you've had a similar experience. Maybe not at boot camp, uh, but where you went looking for help from a coach or a boss, a spouse or a parent or a friend, and you expected sympathy. Uh, you expected some level of understanding and compassion, and yet instead you were greeted with anger or indifference or irritation. Is that what God is like? When we go to God to ask for help, is that what God is like? This morning we're turning to Hebrews 4 and 5 as we consider how it is that Jesus relates to us. What is his heart and his disposition towards his people? Does he recoil at our suffering? Does he despise us for our sinning? Let me encourage you to turn to Hebrews 4. We'll be beginning in verse 14. We'll go through 5.10. You see that in your bulletin as well. So far in the book of Hebrews, we've seen that Jesus is better. That's the main point of the whole book of Hebrews. Jesus is better, therefore don't abandon him. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't revert back to Jewish religion. Instead, Jesus is better than the prophets because he's God's full and final revelation as God's son. He's better than the angels because he rules the cosmos. He's better than Adam because he conquered death rather than succumbing to death through his own death and resurrection. He's better than Moses because he's God's son who rules over the house of God's people. And then a few weeks ago, we saw that Jesus is better than Joshua because Jesus is the one who provides us rest, the rest that Joshua never gave the people of God. And so again, the author's reminding us of these things so that we and his original audience would not drift away. 
There's a danger that in any of us, there would be an evil, unbelieving heart. And so instead, he is exhorting us, and he commands us to exhort one another that our hearts be not hardened. And so we arrive at our passage this morning. We'll have two sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Cling to Jesus, for he is our suffering and sympathetic high priest. Cling to Jesus, for he is our suffering and sympathetic high priest. So look with me, beginning in chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Well, our first section is found in verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4, entitled, Christ's Heart. But really, verse 13 sets the context for the amazing news of this passage. So just look one verse prior to our passage. Verse 13 states, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This means that on judgment day, all our sins will be laid bare before the Lord. All our secret thoughts, all our wicked words, all our deeds of darkness, the sins we know about and the sins we don't know about, the sins we've confessed and the ones we haven't confessed, they will all be exposed on that final day. Friends, that should terrify you if you have any self-awareness. 
That should wake you up and alarm you. That should lead you to think, I need an advocate. I need a refuge. I need a mediator. One who can cover my sins and make me acceptable to God. You need a high priest. And so that's what our passage is about. It's in light of verse 13 that verse 14 is such great news. So look there. It's, it's basically the main idea of our passage. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, when the author refers to confession, uh, that, that is referring specifically to the doctrinal truths that Christians confess about the identity of Jesus Christ. Namely, that Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the man who walked the roads of Palestine, the baby who was born to Mary, that very Jesus, he is none other than the Son of God. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. He was buried in the grave. He rose from the dead three days later. He's sitting at God's right hand now and will one day return. These doctrinal truths... These are what we need to hold on to. Uh, these doctrinal confessions about who Jesus is are our lifeline. They're not optional or negotiable. They must not be abandoned or changed. And thus it's because the real Jesus is so great that he's worth holding on to. Right? Every spring cleaning, what do you do? As you go through that junk drawer or your attic or your basement, because spring cleaning is all about you hold on to the valuable, you get rid of the stuff that isn't important, isn't valuable. Well, it's because Jesus is a great high priest that we should hold on tightly. Uh, there is a danger that we might lose our hold on Christ, and that would be terrible. That would be eternally catastrophic. As a young boy, uh, my mother, she would take me. She likes the Red Sox, so we would go. My father doesn't, uh, not enough action. And so we would go to Red Sox games at Fenway Park as a young boy. And, you know, you'd park your car. You'd pay the exorbitant 40 bucks at a gas station or something. And then you, you'd walk, and slowly the, the crowd would get bigger until you get close to the gates, right? And then you're, you're surrounded by this great throng of people, and so my mother, you know, she'll have, this was back in the day when they actually had tickets, like not just on your phone. And, and she would say, now hold on to your ticket. Like, don't let go. It's really important that you hold on tightly. You know, and I, as a young boy, I was always afraid that somebody would come and snatch that ticket away from me. Uh, or that in the jostle with the crowds, I would somehow lose my hold. Well, friends, of course, that's the great danger in, the, in life as a Christian, that somehow in the jostle of life, we would, hold, we would lose our hold on Christ. The world and the devil are conspiring to try to pry our hands free from Christ, this most valuable possession that we hold on to. Of course, there's also the danger that in the flesh, you know, we would think that we would have found something more valuable than Jesus that we would let go and lose hold on purpose. And thus it is that a high view of the greatness of Jesus will ensure that we keep persevering and holding on. And that's why the rest of our passage 
and basically most of the book of Hebrews, is an unpacking of how great Jesus' high priesthood is. So look at verse 15. It begins with the word for, indicating that we're getting the reason for this holding fast, holding firm. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Friends, verse 14 is meant to be uh, the call to arms, as it were, the call to action. Hold fast. Verse 15 is meant to be a balm for your soul. It is a marvelous verse. There are insights here into the beauty and heart of Christ that, that words, frankly, do not quite do it justice. Do you see what these verses are saying? That our God our king, our high priest, he sympathizes with us in our weakness. The God of the universe, the one who made all things, the one who sustains all things, he doesn't despise our weakness. He doesn't disdain our frailty. Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, has compassion and sympathy with his people. The word sympathize in both Greek and English literally means to suffer with. And thus, even as Dave said earlier, the point is that Jesus doesn't stand far off, cold and detached from our experience. Rather, he suffers with us when we suffer. He has so given his heart to his people that he experiences our experience. You know, it's like when a mother sees her son riding a bike and he falls off and he, he scrapes his knee and it's this, you know, really this carnage on the driveway and he cries out in pain. In that moment, she doesn't stand far off. Her heart goes to her son in love. Her love is so deep that her heart goes out, and she is grieved when he is grieved. That's the kind of sympathy we are to consider here that Christ has for you, Christian. This is the kind of love that Christ has for you. So his love is not just in his dying, but in his heart. Right? So it's not just the objective reality of what he did, it's the reasons that he did it. It's the motivations, the affection that wells up within him. Now, what weaknesses are being referred to here? We know from just a few verses later in 5, 2, and 3, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, that weakness refers to the sinful weaknesses of the other priests. Which is why here in verse 15, the author clarifies that Jesus was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. The point is that Jesus knows what it's like to be weak, to be tempted by sin, though he himself never did sin. Now, when we talk about what it means for Jesus to be tempted, there is a slight difference with the way that we are tempted. Okay, so if you think about how Jesus was tempted in the, dev, uh, in the desert for 40 days, there was an external pre uh, temptation presented to him, right? 
uh, for something illicit, to grab onto something that had not been authorized when the devil came to him. Yet when we experience temptation, there's an external and an internal factor. Okay, so just to use a simple example, if you're at the store and you see somebody's wallet fall out, right, you see there's, there's cash in that wallet, in that moment, you might be tempted to grab the wallet on the ground or to grab some of the cash on the ground. In that moment, when you see the wallet there, there's an external presentation of temptation, but it kind of latches hold, as it were, to these internal sinful desires that we have. These internal temptations for comfort and ease at the expense of others. So it is that when we, we've got this kind of latent tempta- these latent sinful desires that the external temptation kind of shakes up and brings to the surface. So when Jesus was tempted, because his heart was perfectly pure, there was no internal temptation to sin that he had. He had no proclivity or desire for sin like we have. Yet the external temptations were as real as they could be. In fact, Jesus endured stronger temptation than you or I will ever endure because he never gave in. You know, when we give in to temptation, whether it's stealing or gossip or lust or self-righteousness, at that moment that we give in, the temptation dies, doesn't it? It's no longer temptation. It's now just sin. And yet precisely because Jesus never gave in, he never sinned, he endured the worst onslaughts of hell and temptation. And thus because he knows what it's like to experience weakness and temptation, now he sympathizes with us when we are tempted and suffering. As one commentator states, it's not only that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles, like a doctor prescribing medicine, It's also that before any relief comes, he is with us in our troubles, like a doctor who has endured the same disease. We all want this kind of solidarity in our lives, don't we? It's why singles go to other single people for consolation. It's why parents of newborns go to other newborn parents. Why empty nesters talk with other empty nesters. Because they know what it's like. Well, friends, Jesus knows what your life is like. He knows what it's like to be weak and to be tempted. And yet he never sinned. This is profoundly good news. Sin is like this hole that we've all fallen into. If Jesus was tempted as we are, okay, that's great. We can feel this solidarity. But if he falls into the hole also, he can't help us get out. We need him to stand outside the ditch and bring us up. As a different commentator states, what we needed was not a fellow loser, but a winner. Not one who shares our defeat, but one who is able to lead us to victory. Not a sinner, but a savior. So friends, do you feel weak this morning? Are you aware of your weaknesses? I don't ask if you have weaknesses. 
Because you do. I do. We all do. All of us suffer in sin. It's the sad reality of life. And in our suffering and in our sin, we are prone to believe that we are alone. That's one of Satan's lies, that no one understands what we are going through. That no one has endured this suffering or this temptation as strongly as you are currently enduring it. Beloved, the truth is that on this earth, it might be true, your friends might not know the depths of your suffering. Your family may not understand the depths of your temptation. In this life, you may not have a friend that fully comprehends what you're going through. But friends, Jesus does. Jesus sympathizes with you in your struggle. When you are fighting temptation, Jesus isn't thinking, is she really still struggling with that? Has he really not figured this out? Beloved, no. Jesus' heart goes tenderly out to his people. He longs to ease your suffering. He came and suffered and was tempted and never gave in all to comfort you. Also that he could help you. And so how should we respond to that? Well, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you notice how the theology of verses 14 and 15 lead to the practice of verse 16? Because Jesus is such a great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, therefore, draw near. The point is that Jesus isn't a drill instructor. He's not tapping his foot, scowling, angry, wondering why we keep bothering him for help. He's not irritated that you keep coming to him. He welcomes us. Uh, this should lead us, brothers and sisters, to draw near boldly and often. Because in the first place, it's Jesus' blood that has bought us access to God's throne. So this isn't something that we've earned. It's not something we've deserved. No, this access is a gift. And so we don't need to come timid or afraid. We can draw near confident, not in ourselves, but confident in Christ. Now, practically, to draw near to God's throne, it's to pray, right? And so Trinity Church of Bedford, we should be those who are quick and eager to pray. We should be quick and eager to pray as individuals as we go about our day. Uh, when we have trials and temptations, we should be quick and eager to pray. We should be quick and eager to pray in our families, around the dinner table, at bed as people are going to sleep. When financial difficulties or health difficulties or relational difficulties spring up, parents, we should be quick to pray with our kids, husbands, with your wives. Uh, we should be quick to intercede together. And as a church, it shouldn't be a strange thing after service to see people huddled up praying together. 
It shouldn't be a strange thing in our worship service to pray together. On Sunday nights, we come back together to pray together. Think about a child with her father. She doesn't work up some great big speech, iron her clothes, comb her hair, recite, for some, recite some presentation, all to ask for a glass of milk. You know, what does she do? Even though she has an imperfect father, she boldly draws near to ask for help. That's the kind of posture, Christians, that we are to have. How often do we fail to pray because we imagine that God is scowling on the other side? We think we need to clean up our act, have a good day or two, make sure we're consistent with our devotions, go to church, be a good person, give a little bit, and then maybe we can draw near to God. But friends, to do so is to act like we don't have a great high priest. It's to act like our qualification to enter God's presence is our own merits, when it's always been Christ's merits. He either gets you in or he doesn't. Like, your goodness will never get you there. It's to forget that we have a Father in heaven. Just notice in verse 16, again, there's so many details we can kind of focus in on. Notice that it's a throne of grace. Thrones are important places, aren't they? They're where kings and queens rule. They are powerful. They're where decrees and edicts go out, where things get done. And so I don't know about you, but I need God's power in my life. I, I need his help on a daily basis. And so what's so good news is that this throne is not an exacting throne. It's not a dismissive or severe throne. God's throne, the way he rules and reigns, is overflowing with grace. And that's why when we turn there, we can expect to receive mercy and find grace. Those aren't strange or abnormal things to God. That's what he's all about. You know, you don't go to a car mechanic for oysters, or at least you shouldn't. Uh, you don't go to Starbucks for a haircut. Your accountant can't fix a leaky roof. And so it is that when we go to God in prayer, we ask for mercy and grace He's not flabbergasted as if like, whoa, 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 what are you doing here asking for that? that that's, that's not here. That's something else. No. Grace and mercy aren't the side salad, side shows to the importance of anger or wrath. Beloved, when you as a Christian draw near to God's throne, grace is the main meal. And this means that, Christians, we should run to God in our time of need. Like a good father, he longs to be with his children. Christ is ever interceding for us. I think one, one reason we can get this confused is that maturity in basically every other area of life is greater and greater in dependence. Right? So if you think about like a kid learning to ride a bike, you hold on to the kid, and then eventually the little child learns how to ride on his or her own. 
Uh, you think about in job training, right? You get a new person on the job, and you're, you're walking with them through the steps. Okay, do this. Okay, do that. Oh, no, don't forget this. Maturity in every other area of life is basically independence. You can do it on your own. You don't need help anymore. And yeah, beloved, maturity in the Christian life is not greater independence from God. It is greater acknowledgement of our dependence. I don't even say it's greater dependence, because we are always dependent. It's just greater acknowledgement, greater awareness of our dependence on God. How would it change our lives if verses 14, 15, and 16 really took hold? That Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, that he longs for us to draw near because of his perfect work. How would our lives change? We've already considered how we should be more prayerful. I think we'd also be more joyful. I think we'd be more joyful, don't you? Right? Nobody wants a scowling, harsh, domineering master. Yet that's how we can sometimes imagine Jesus. And yet, beloved, the truth is that his grace should lead to our joy. I think we'd also long for heaven more. You know, again, what is prayer except a foretaste of heaven? Being in God's presence. But heaven doesn't sound so great if God is always a buzzkill. If, if he's always disappointed and frustrated with us. But we realize that Christ's position towards us is one of mercy and grace and love. That's exactly who I want to be around. That's exactly who I want to spend time with, who I want to spend eternity with. And, and then finally, I think if, if we really owned these truths, we would seek to display this kind of mercy and grace and sympathy towards others. We wouldn't be dismissive of people's troubles. We wouldn't be frustrated by their failings. We would sympathize. And the results of, of this kind of graciousness, I think, are explosively, powerfully great. Right? I mean, it's pretty clear in our society, society is not marked by mercy, grace, and sympathy. Can I get an amen? Yeah, beloved, what if this church was known for that? What if we were known, not for condoning sin, that's not the point, but showing patience and tenderness and compassion for the hurting? What if we bore with and loved and showed mercy towards the sinning? Of all places, the church, Trinity Church of Bedford, we want to be known for this kind of love and grace. Think about as well what, what embodying this attitude of Christ, this heart of Christ would do in your family. Uh, parents, how might you embodying this lead to the prospering and flourishing of your kids? Husbands, how might that kind of tender leadership bring out the beauty and the strength of your wife? Uh, this Thanksgiving around the dinner table, whether you're with friends or family, uh, this holiday season, whomever you're with, uh, what would it look like if your speech isn't marked by coarseness or rudeness, but by genuine love and sympathy 
for the sorrows of others. Beloved, an eternity awaits us of enjoying Christ's mercy and grace. We will forever delight in his sympathy and love. And the amazing thing is that we can enjoy that now. We don't have to wait. We need God's help, though. We need God's spirit. So it is that Christ is our great high priest, sympathetic with his people. Now, we haven't actually defined the job description. Like, what, okay, Scott, you keep using the word priest, but what does a priest do? That's our second point in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 5, uh, entitled Christ's Job. So Christ's heart was our first point, Christ's job. Here's the second. What's the role, what's the job of a high priest? We'll basically see that in the first couple verses, the job description is expounded. And then uh, second, we'll see how Christ fulfills this office. Just consider briefly five aspects of the high priest's qualifications and responsibilities in verses 1 to 4. So first, in verse 1, we see that every high priest is chosen from among men. Now, this is really key. For the high priest to be a mediator between God and man, the mediator has to be a person, a human being. That's why earlier in chapter 2, the author had stated that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. The point is that the high priest represents the people. So if the people are humans, well, so too must the high priest. This is why God became man. This is why the Son of God came to earth as a baby. This is what Christmas is all about, that Jesus could be our advocate and our Redeemer as our high priest. Second thing to note, simply that the high priest mediates between God and man. See that? Verse 1 mentions that he acts on behalf of God in relation, or sorry, on behalf of men in relation to God. He's the go-between. He's the middleman. Adam and Eve in their sinless uh, state, they didn't need a mediator. But ever since Genesis 3, we need a mediator. We have a sinless God and sinful people. So we need someone to go between, to bring reconciliation. And that happens, third, uh, as the high priest offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is how the gap is bridged. Our sins make the gap. Something has to die to bridge the gap. That's what the sacrifices accomplish. Fourth, Verses 2 and 3 tell us that the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. As we've already considered, Jesus also was beset with weakness, but he never gave in to temptation. So he didn't need to offer sacrifice first for his own sins, then for the people. Uh, The point, though, is that the high priest identifies with. The high priest identifies with his people. And then fifth and finally, verse 4 states that no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. And so in summary, God calls a man to represent the people to mediate for them. And the priest does this by means of offerings for sin. This is what all people on planet Earth, all seven billion of us need. Again, sometimes people ask the question, well, can't there be salvation outside of Jesus? Well, you need a perfect high priest. If you can find a perfect high priest outside of Jesus, sure. But there aren't any. This is the the job, the office, the qualifications for the high priest. And now, uh, the author turns to show how Christ fulfills it. 
So we see in verses 5 and 6 that Christ didn't exalt himself to be made high priest, uh, but he was called by God, right? God appointed him. And the author cites Psalms 2 and 110 to prove that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's really interesting. These are the same two psalms that had buttressed the author's argument earlier that Jesus is the king. So earlier, we've seen Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 earlier in the book of Hebrews. And they were to prove that Jesus is the king. Now they're used to prove Jesus is the high priest. Shortly, in in just a few chapters, the author is going to give us tons and tons and tons on Melchizedek. So I'll let you keep reading in your Bibles if you want to learn more about him today. But suffice it to show The point is that Jesus' qualifications are top-notch. He wasn't in a remedial priesthood class. Uh, No, he's got a diploma from the Ivy League of high priesthood, as it were. Unless it is as a priest, verse 7, that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. You see, Jesus, as a priest, you know, if you're following him around during his fleshly, earthly days, you would have said, you know, he doesn't look like a high priest. He's not standing after the altar killing goats and bulls and calves. So, so what were the sacrifices that he brought? And the answer is prayers and supplications. These were the sacrifices that he brought to God, as it were. In the days of his flesh, almost certainly referring to the last days on earth, what we read earlier about the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. The point is that Jesus walked the road on his last days in particular, in Gethsemane and on the cross, in that time, offering prayers and sacrifices to God. In those last days, as he endured terrible suffering. He did it for us. With loud cries and tears, he interceded. Now, you might be surprised when it says that God saved him from death. Do you notice that? Because we read earlier in the Garden of Eden, Jesus prayed that the cup would pass from him. And then he went to the cross. So why does Hebrews 5 say that he prayed that God would deliver him from death and he was heard, meaning he was heard and and answered. His request was answered. It was approved. How did God deliver him? Well, of course, God did not save Jesus from experiencing death, but he did save him from abiding in death. For God what? God raised him from the dead. God did not save Jesus from death on Good Friday, but he did on Easter Sunday. And thus, the fact that God answered these prayers of Jesus should be a comfort and encouragement to us. If God delivered Jesus from death, then we can be confident that he too will deliver us. Uh, You don't want a high priest, you don't want a lawyer or an advocate who never wins his case. And Jesus was heard because of his reverence. So we can be confident that he will indeed intercede well on our behalf as well. Yet you still might be put off and confused by the fact that the Son of God had to suffer and die. I mean, he's God. Did he really have to go through all that? Well, verses 8 to 10 bring the argument to a conclusion. We read, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In chapter 4, 14 to 16, we saw how Jesus identifies with us in our weakness, that is, in our temptation to sin. Here, the emphasis on Jesus walking the road of suffering that we endure. So, so there, it was identifi- identifying with us in our being tempted. Here, it's in particular that he walks the road of suffering. In short, Jesus, through his suffering, was qualified for the office of high priest. Although he was the Son of God and is the Son of God according to his divine nature, well, according to his human nature, he had to learn obedience. One commentator writes, although Jesus was never disobedient to God, he could not demonstrate obedience until he was placed in situations where the will of God was challenged and obedience was required. And what's so remarkable is that Jesus' obedience was proved in the crucible of suffering. He experienced our suffering. He walked our path. You know, when we experience trial and suffering and loss, it's almost never chosen in our lives. Right? We We don't volunteer for it. But it comes. It comes, doesn't it? Cancer or job loss, loneliness, broken relationships, insomnia, the death of a loved one, chronic illness. I mean, these are just things that we don't choose to enter into, but we do anyways because it's part of life. And yet Jesus chose suffering. You know, how many of us in the suffering in our life, if God gave us the option, hey, do you want to suffer this? You, you know, or, or do you want to opt out? We'd go, yeah, I'll opt out, please. Yet Jesus freely chose to opt in. He chose to walk our suffering paths so that you would know that you have a kind and compassionate Savior who can deal gently with your sufferings and your temptations. He's the type of Savior who knows the pains and sorrows of life. He's the type of King who knows what it's like to be abused. He's the type of High Priest who has compassion on those that are frail. And thus now he is the perfect high priest. He's one who can identify perfectly with us and our weaknesses. He's walked our road. He has fulfilled every requirement now to be the high priest that we need. And thus the response is as verse 9 ends. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, to all who obey him. For the Christian, that means persevering in faith and in holiness. It means holding fast our confession about who Jesus is, that Christ is the only high priest who can offer eternal salvation. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. It means trusting in him and his blood. It means looking to Christ alone, for your standing before God. Because verse 13, that day of judgment is coming. But Jesus as high priest is held out to all who would obey him. To all who would trust you can be made right with God if you believe. If you trust in the Son of God and what he has done for you. There is no standing before God. There is no righteousness. There is no hope outside of Christ. But with him, 
there is ample joy and love, mercy and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come and we marvel that you would invite us into your presence. We feel our unworthiness, our weakness, and yet we praise you that we are not alone, that the Lord Jesus has compassion and mercy and grace. We pray that his heart would be real to every person in this room, young or old, boy or girl, man or woman, rich or poor. We pray that Christ's heart would be real, that we change the way that we live, we change the way we treat others. We change the way we relate to you and know you. God, we pray that you'd help us. This is our time of need. We need, we want to grow in our, our love for you because you have loved us. So help us to know that love more. We pray these things in Jesus' name, our great high priest, in his name only. Amen.